0: EscapingTheCave.com. Also on Facebook and at ETC Pod on Twitter. Escaping the Cave, and I'm getting really sick of guys named Todd. Zilla, X-Pod. Zilla X-Pod. I've been talking a lot about social media. This is gonna tie into that. I probably should have shooed you all away because some of this does tie into the social media disease theme. I think we have an interview, not really an interview. It's going to be sort of a three-person podcast set up for next week with uh, two of the unregimented guys, the one that's not a uh, resistance guy. Uh, But the other two are going to come and join me, and I think we're going to talk about uh, social media, and we're going to talk about the social media fever, the outrage fever that sort of the pestilence of of the online world these days. And I, I got sucked into that this week. For everything that I talk about and is aware, hyper-aware, as I am personally, about uh, outrage and about uh, propaganda, about being triggered online, shoved into an agenda, I personally, me, got sucked into it this week. There's two elements to this. One's personal. Another is a broader topic. All right. I'm going to address both, I think, today. And I'll move on to the broader topic moving forward, because it does. It does tie directly into everything that I've been talking about over the last couple of weeks. But the thing that got me this week was that I got sucked into it. It disturbs me immensely. If I'm going to get sucked into this, as aware of it as I am, what hope is there for anybody that isn't nearly as aware of the problem as I am. Is there any hope for these people to survive the informational onslaught? Let me get into it. I'll describe what happened. I am not proud of this at all. But I posted a, uh, something I had found on Twitter about uh, a sign that was posted either in Portland or Seattle. And the sign read, dating whites is wrong. And in essence, it said that whoever dates a white guy or a white woman will be punished. Because white people stand for bad things, it reminded me of an old Nazi poster. I have a folder full of these things—the old propaganda posters from Nazi Germany—in my on my computer. And it reminded me exactly like you could translate or transfer Jews for whites, and that would have been right at home in the Third Reich. It set me off into just my brain disconnected, and all I was was pissed. So I took it. I went over to Facebook. Posted it. Let's just say I added some commentary. (laughs) It wasn't very nice. Like, how the fuck can you people even look at this and not understand what it is? And I was right, but in the wrong way. Right? And, of course, that triggered a couple of the usual suspects. Um, One in particular. I wasn't a very good friend. I mean, I, I traveled with him a little bit. I knew him. Uh, in person, got along with it, really liked the guy. But he has been giving me the impression over the last couple of months that he's just sort of sitting in the weeds waiting to jump out and hit me. He's a progressive guy. He's a liberal guy. right? And I'm sort of a traitor to the liberal cause at this point. So any opportunity some of these folks get, (laughs) they'll take it. And I've been waiting for this guy. I, I can typically, he doesn't comment very often or didn't. He's gone now, but he didn't comment very often. And whenever I would post something, usually about guns or any kind of, you know, leftist uh, hot button issue, I'd be, all right, this is going to get him. And usually I was right. And there's a couple other people that are the same way. But this time he came back with uh, this glass houses thing. That's all he posted. Glass houses. Basically, Todd, you're a hypocrite. Because I had posted something uh, to the effect that I was sick of prefabricated, standardized thoughts and opinions. Stuff I've already talked about on here. If you've listened to the podcast, you know exactly what I'm talking about already. Well, he's like, well, you just do the same thing. And white rage. I was already pissed off to begin with. I saw that. and like, you motherfucker, get the fuck out of here. And he was gone. It, t- it took me two minutes to get him out of my friends list. We're done. Now, I don't know what happened there. I think I've been pretty implicitly or explicitly clear about where I'm coming from on a lot of this. And perhaps I've given you the impression that when I say original thinking and not using prefabricated thoughts, you thought that I meant don't go read anything. What I'm talking about is just basically reiterating or repeating or regurgitating doctrine. The entire top-to-bottom doctrine. I'm not saying that if you're pro-choice, that you're only getting that view because you're a liberal. If you have homogenous thoughts top to bottom, everything liberal is your belief, then I'm suspicious. In this case, this guy had never shown me any reason to believe that any of his thoughts and or opinions we're not homogeneously in line with everything liberal. A lot of my liberal friends are the same exact way. I have never seen them put forth anything deviating from the doctrine of the liberal church. So when I see that, after everything I've done, after everything I've gone through in the last 10 years, to make sure, to put myself through a filter, to make sure that I'm not just regurgitating somebody else's prepackaged doctrinal bullshit to see glass houses in this drive by fucking fashion. Oh yeah, what's glass house about it, fucker? Get the fuck away from me. I'm still pissed off about it, can you tell? <laughs> this is a few days ago. Eh? So I reacted. And I'm gonna get to this because this is this is extremely this is important. Uh, for my old friends, for anybody that knows me personally or interacts with me on a regular basis online, it's important that you understand where this, some of the stuff that I'm going to get to comes from. Because I, I, I come across as temperamental. Like, I'll turn on you. And I will. But you have to understand why and where it comes from and what, I hate the word, I got to use it, triggers me. It's a very specific thing. And when I sniff it out, man, you're done. You are done, gone, for good. This has happened to me a lot, and I don't think people understand where it's coming from. They have no reason to understand where it's coming from. I've never warned them about it. I've never even talked about it publicly. Not really. I need to do that. And I want you to understand where I'm at. I, wanna, I want you to understand where I'm coming from, and I want you to also to understand where the fence line is, the boundary line. Because a lot of us haven't seen each other, haven't laid eyes on each other in 30 fucking years. That's important to me. If I haven't seen you in 30 years, had an organic interaction with you in that long, our friendship capital may not be as high as you think it is. I put a lot of stock in that. I don't put a lot of stock And I'm going to get to this in a little bit, but I don't put a lot of stock in maybe running around in trucks drinking beer chasing beaver 30 years ago as a 48-year-old man. We probably had great times. We probably got along really well. Had a lot of things in common 30 fucking years ago. I'm not the same person now at all. And there is some cognitive dissonance here with me when it comes to interacting with people that I have not seen in so long. There's roles that people play. We haven't been around each other. I haven't seen the changes in you. I didn't see your kids grow. I didn't see them born. I didn't see them as 8-year-olds. I didn't see them as 13-year-olds. I didn't see them as 18-year-olds. The shock between who we were then and who we are now, the difference in the gulf is astronomical, and there's there's not been any short passage of time here. So when we get together... And we sit down and we start chatting. One of two things has to happen. Since there's no shared experience between 1989 and 2019, one of us has to revert to roles, or we have to proceed to really get to know each other really, really well. Again, start from the beginning. That doesn't typically happen. So one of us has to revert to our roles. And most of the time, we revert to the old roles we both once had. I've talked about this before. I've used the pet cemetery thing. Sometimes that is better. Digging up ghosts. And how sometimes it's better to leave the bones in the friendship boneyard. Let the ghosts lie, man. Let the let the bodies lie. We can talk about, you know, these really superficial things. Stuff we did a long time ago. We can be friendly, we can reminisce, we can you know, sort of interact on this common level that we once had. But when it goes beyond that and it starts to get to who we are now, there is no commonality there. We, we don't have any shared experience here. And it's a real problem for me because when I was there and I lived there, I wasn't exactly a shining example of a human being. I was drunk most of the time, man. I, did, I had the depth of a thimble. I mean, it was there, but I didn't do anything with it. You sure as hell didn't see it. Most of the time, most of my friends and I were either at the bar or playing softball or doing something that involved partying, right? And when I go back there now, I noticed this in 2013 when I went to my friend Brian's place. It's really difficult for me to be there and try to reconcile who I am now with who I was then and try to have these roles sort of recur, and try to fight that off. It's nearly impossible to do. Let me go back a little ways here. When I first left in 1997, I was 26 years old. I tried very hard to get away from there for a long time. I tried and failed probably four or five times to get out of Hillsdale because something inside of me told me that if I didn't escape that place, if I didn't go find something better, I was only going to drink myself to death. And I believe that assessment was 100% accurate. I think that if I had stayed there, I would have either wrapped my car around a tree, gone to prison for drunk driving, or just drank myself into a stupor and to death. I had to get away from there. I had to find some purpose that was beyond Hiltucky County. It was hard for me to do. Incredibly hard for me to do. But I did it. And that's changed a couple of times, but none of you saw it. I I vanished one day like a ghost. Poof, gone. This is before the internet really caught on. None of you kept up with me. I mean, maybe a couple of you I would call. But the rest of you, I'm just dead. I may as well have died that day. And you for me. goes both ways. I put up a firewall while I was working at the radio station Kalamazoo. I hardly ever went back to Hillsdale. And when I did, it was only for targeted, what I called targeted strikes. I was going to see very specific people. I was not deviating from the path. I'm not the only one that's done this, by the way. I've had some pretty good conversations with others. to be like, I can't. I just got to go and get out. Go and get out. And there's a reason for this. And it doesn't have anything to do with rednecks, and it doesn't have anything to do with living out in the country and all that other stuff. I mean, a lot of people find that area (laughs) less than fulfilling for different reasons. Mine is a lot more personal. And it, at its core, doesn't really have anything to do with Hillsdale itself. It's about where I came from. I need to tell you this so that you understand what it is about Hillsdale and its people, and the cognitive dissonance that I have between who I am now and where I came from. Okay, you've noticed the name changes. <laughs> Most of you know my real last name. None of, none of the other people do. I haven't used that that last name on anything but a document, like a like an official like work thing, <laughs> since 1997. 22 years. And the reason that is, is because that name, the Dutch one, is not my name. It was the name that I was given when I was born. The man owning that name is not my father. A lot of you know the basic background of this, uh, but I've never really gotten into it with you. Then I'll trust you. We're not that good of friends. Right? But my real father... Um, his last name was Dubai. Is Dubai still kicking, I think. Uh, but he decided uh, after my mom was pregnant with me, right around the same time, same area, he got somebody else pregnant. For reasons I'm not going to share here, he decided that he was going to go marry this other woman and raise another family somewhere else. Okay, which is fine. He had his reasons. When I met him in 2000 for the first time, when I was 30 years old, he he told me a couple of them, and you know what? I was all right with it. All right, cool. I get that. I understand where you're coming from. Fine. I could get by that. What I could not get by, and I still can't to this day, and I don't think I'll ever get by it, was never being contacted. Actually acting like uh, he had a son out there that did not exist. He still does that. He's given me the courtesy of spending 45 minutes at the Lakeview Square food court when I was 30. And we hung out at his, at his house for a couple hours when I, I met my other sisters on his side of the family back in 2009. We went over and hung out. You could tell he was just completely uncomfortable and didn't want to deal with the situation. He's always been that way. Now, when I found out about him when I was 8 years old, something happened to me. OK, I know it's old and I know there's get over it. Go go, fuck yourself. Just go the fuck away. Go watch Judge Judy or something. If that's your attitude about it. If you think you could just get over it, you don't need to be here. I don't want you here because it doesn't fucking work that way. You can sit there. It's like it's like writing something out on a piece of paper. It's like planning a city on notebook paper. Yeah, good luck putting that together, fucker. I don't need to hear it. I know you're out there. I know there's some of you. Go away. Do it now. I'll give you a minute. You gone yet? Good. But that did something to me when I was probably eight or nine years old. It did something to my sense of who I was, what I was, and my sense of value. Self-worth. It's always been a sense inside of me since I was a little kid, that I wasn't worth anything. I, I, I've always struggled to articulate that. It's, it's self-worth. Being rejected, being not good enough, that was ingrained into my head by myself, admittedly, my perception of it from the time I was a kid. I never got over that. And a lot of what you saw when I was in high school and afterwards stemmed from that. I mean, the alcohol use, when I figured out that that would get rid of social anxiety, <laughs> Ooh, yeah! That's what alcohol's always been for me. A lubricant. To keep me from feeling self-conscious. To keep me from feeling like I didn't belong anywhere. When I drink, I don't give a shit. And it's great. I love it. But ever since that day, even with my own family, the family that raised me, I have never felt like I belonged anywhere. I still don't to this day. I have (laughs) my uh, girlfriend that I've been with for almost, uh, what has it been, 17 years now. Her family is nice to me. They're great. They've accepted me, but I don't feel part of anything. It's really hard for me to go to like Christmas and stuff because I don't belong there. I don't feel like I belong there despite being with her for 17 years. I don't feel comfortable there. I don't feel comfortable anywhere. I don't feel like I belong and, and, and am accepted anywhere. Unless I drink. And that creates its own problems. That's always been there. It's something I have to fight on a constant basis. I know it's not rational. Human beings, if you haven't noticed, we're not rational beings at all. We can be rational. I mean, I can sit here and I can write it out on paper like I said earlier. And I can say, well, this isn't this and this isn't this, but it, it doesn't work in the mind. Unless you get to it early, change the layout and the perception, it's almost impossible to change that. You have to maintain it. And I can for the most part. But there are times when I can't. And those times always revolve around betrayal, things like that. And when those things are triggered, hate that word. Got to use it. Sorry. <laughs> when those things are triggered, though, there's this thing in me, in my head, that's like, you know what? Get the fuck away from me. Every fucking one of you just get the motherfuck away from me. I start destroying relationships. If not destroying relationships, at least getting them the hell away from me. Putting up walls, stiff arms, however you want to look at it. I need to get people away from me because people become a threat to that. I mean, in my head, it's better to be alone than to deal with that kind of emotional turmoil. I mean, it's potent, man. It's I, I can't explain it to you. I cannot it it takes over everything. It triggers depression. I have to be really careful of it. And so I have to maintain, I have to maintain my relationship garden. I have to tend to it closely and make sure that there are not threats in it, right? But there have been things in the last 10 years that have made that worse, starting with social media, to be honest with you, Facebook. I mean, the the first couple of years was great, right? But there are a combination of things that happen online or after meeting people online, like my half-sisters on my dad's side, I guess you should probably understand that, too, because I I met them in 2009 after I came back and reconnected with everybody in Hillsdale. It was actually during that month (laughs) that I met my sister in Quincy. Or, I'm sorry, in Ohio. I met my brother, and there was all this reconnecting going on around Hiltucky as well. And everything was great. I calmed the fuck down for like a year. Year and a half. Like, I I felt just, ah. And then those relationships started ending. There were no explanations. They just went away. I haven't talked to my one sister, the first one I met. I haven't talked to her at all since, I think, 2010. It's been nine years now. And the other one, we lost contact, uh, lost touch, haven't exchanged anything since 2011. Eight years. So... I met my dad. I met all of these sisters and brothers that I had on that side of the family. Felt like I belonged somewhere only to have them just go the fuck away. Again, without any any sort of explanation. Not that they owed me one, I guess. Would have been nice. I would have given them one. But that was basically opening up this old wound that I dealt with pretty well. Really, I had. I had compartmentalized that and put it behind me until I met them. And then it drug it up from the depths of my being, ripped the scab off, and then infected it. I've thought about this a number of times. Would I go back 10 years this year? Would I go back and would I meet all of those brothers and sisters? And I don't think I would. It was great. I had a great year and a half with him. It was good to get to know him. I I adore my nephews. But overall, that experience was not good for me. And I am in a worse place now than I was at the end of 2008 because of it. It's made me skittish. I don't trust people. I don't accept feeling like I'm a part of something because of the likelihood that that's going to end and I'm going to be kicked out. Happens a lot. It's happened a lot to me. Some of it's my fault. I don't really care about the blame, to be honest with you. I've, you know, (laughs) encouraged some of this. I admit that. But it doesn't matter. Yeah, it may be one of those things where I'm sort of generating it. I don't feel like I belong, so I generate people ostracizing me. I don't know. It could be. I admit that. I'll offer it. But either way, I've gotten to the point now where I don't trust anybody. There's some other things that happened with my other family in 2013. I don't even trust my family. I don't trust my mother. <laughs> I've had a lot of friends that have gone by the wayside for various reasons. A lot of one friendship ended because they didn't like something I put on a Facebook post about wealth, if you can believe that. I consider him one of my best friends. So I have a choice to make, really. It's either deal with the pain that comes from these periodic rejections or just keep people the hell away from me when they give me any reason to think they're a threat. And more often than not, and I've noticed this the last couple of years, those threats are becoming more apparent a lot easier. Does that make sense? I am seeing them more often. Now, you combine it with the stuff that I've been talking about as far as trying to think more independently, not join a political tribe or political cult, thinking for yourself. It, it provokes people. People do not like to be told they're not thinking for themselves. Whether they are or not, they don't like to hear it. They don't like to hear that their opinions have been inseminated into their skulls. A phrase I used last week, I think. People hate that. I, I know that going in. But it makes me a target then, doesn't it? So if anybody's looking to get back at me, get a jab at me, they're, they're going to be lying in the weeds like Sandy was this week. And when I see that, you're gone. I, I come from the point of view at this point that my friends don't like me. And they're just waiting. I mean, my best friend of the world, I don't even think he likes me. <laughs> I really don't. I speak his language and I can relate to him. We've had a lot of great days and great experiences and stuff, and that I that I think is why the friendship maintains, because we're the only two that can actually speak this language and understand it. The language of the stuff we, we did when we were traveling. Beyond that, no, I don't think I don't think he'd be friends with me other than that. I don't my family doesn't like me. It's a really, it's a hell of a thing, and I'm I'm smiling as I say this, and that's that in and of itself is bizarre. <laughs> it really is, <laughs> but it's a hell of a thing to sit here and understand and realize your friends don't like you, and to understand why. I wouldn't like me either. But it's it's the bed it's the bed I made. I have a choice. I can either be likable, or I can be real. And if I choose to be real, and that makes me unlikable, then I've got to deal with the fact that I'm going to be isolated. I'm human. Human beings are social creatures. It affects me. It affects me more than I'd like it to. It provides weaknesses and openings for people to exploit. But I have a problem here. Because I also have this thing where because of uh, the self-worth thing and all this other stuff, that I am addicted to attention, praise, validation. You know, the low self-worth makes me want people to think I'm worth something. Right? And you got to understand, there's something else you need to understand here. that The low self-worth thing isn't, I don't feel it about myself. Actually, I'm borderline arrogant (laughs) when I think about who I am and what I am. It's all about being perceived as such. That's the problem. And so, when social media came around, when Facebook came around, that really got me addicted. The likes, the shares, the comments, even some of the fights, you know. Gave me a chance to show off my rhetorical combattery. That <laughs> yeah, was a real problem. It became a drug. This I'm not alone here. There's a lot of people that are in the same boat that I am. A ton. I mean, millions. Who are addicted to the dopamine rush of constant approval, constant attention. For me, though, it really hit. It, I, I don't know if particularly hard is the right word. But it hit hard. Because it exploited a weakness that I already had and took me in a direction that um, I wish it hadn't. So, if you listen to what I just said, and you combine the two things, both of these two parts of me, this independence and wanting to think by myself and think for myself and be isolated alone in my independence and not part of a cult or a tribe is conflicting with the need to belong, the need for approval. Butting heads all the time. And it's really hard. It's impossible to balance that. How do you balance something like that? Defiant independence with a need for approval and to belong somewhere. You can't balance that. And it gets to the point where the two things are matter and antimatter. And when they collide, something has to happen. And it seems like every few months, a couple of times a year, it happens. As it did this week. And my initial reaction, that's 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 a misrepresentation. That's inaccurate. It wasn't an it was an initial reaction. I saw it, I felt it, I remembered it. I remember thinking, God, I wish I hadn't done that like a month later. So I tried to avoid it. I tried to just get away from it. I tried to go out and kill super mutants. I tried to be a little more conciliatory this time and try to just ride out the wave until it passed. It didn't work. I have got to get people away from me for my brain and my mind to calm the hell down once it's, once it's off in that, in that zone. And that didn't even help this time because now I, now I understand it, <laughs> you see. So I got rid of all these people, about 40 of you. Almost all from Hillsdale. Because that's where I, I, I think part of the problem lies, is not being able to balance fully balance who I am now with who I was then. But it didn't help. But if you know me for a matter of decades and you have recollections of me in high school or shortly thereafter, you can probably see it now. Some of the behavior showing off, trying to embrace being the outcast and the rebel because I didn't feel like I belonged anywhere. A lot of you I know have detected this this part of me that when I'm around a bunch of people, or even a few people that I don't know very well, I will shut down occasionally where the anxiety just gets to the point that I I can't deal with it and I just have to sit there. I am so uncomfortable that I can't engage unless I'm drinking. I know a lot of you have seen that over the years. That's where it is, though. Just not comfortable in my own skin around other people. And it's one of the things about the hitchhiking and the traveling around Latin America that I think appealed to me was that I was already seen as an outsider, as an outcast, especially when I'm hitchhiking. I'm already out on the fringe, right? So how I felt fit what I was doing. (laughs) Yeah. Weird, I know. And there was no relationship to maintain. Nobody to impress. Let's put it that way. I was already seen as a road critter. Right? So everything that they found out about me after I got in the car was like, oh, you're not an idiot. You're not a drunk. You're not on heroin. You're smart. Holy shit so i was moving up on the scale instead of trying to impress anybody weird but i can't do that anymore that was my first instinct this week was and it always is get the fuck away from me get everything the fuck away from me i'm going to tear this down i'm going to tear this down going to just scrape everything start over completely self-destructive self-defeating but it's just i don't know why that is it's always been that way and i'm i'm learning not to give into it quite as much these days you know the first i thought this podcast was done i think my friend matt (laughs) assumed that before this came out that i was not going to be podcasting again and i had the urge man i was i'm looking at this board i'm like yeah fucker can go back now i can get the money and then i can go then i can get my boots i can get my bivy i can get back on the road Woo! problem is i got a bum foot now (laughs) getting old sucks got a nerve issue in my foot if I walk for longer longer than 20 minutes now, my foot goes numb, starts to look like the outer toes are on fire. Now, that sounds like fun out on the side of the road, doesn't it? You know, there's one other thing to this as far as the hitching goes. And one of the things that I think appealed to me about hitting the road again is that since I've come back to Michigan, we've been back here, I guess, uh, what, 14, 15, 15, 16 months, a little over a year. I didn't want to come back here. I left here in 2003, 2004 rather, and I never thought that I would find myself back in Michigan. My girlfriend's family's all here. She's got a huge, tight-knit family here. But when we left, I never thought I'd come back. I never saw myself coming back here. And when we discussed it over the years, it always, to me, felt like that if I came back here, I was pretty much going to curl up and die, just wither away. Because there's nothing here, nothing here for me whatsoever outside of my mother. And that relationship is, you know, kind of weird. And then when we got in the situation we got to in Massachusetts last year, it got to the point where it's like, well, at least she would be happy here. I came up with the idea independently of her, but we both kind of came to it. At least, you know, at least we can get her around her family. So she can have some sort of a support system around her other than me. And so we came back, and for her, it's worked out swimmingly well. It's great. She belongs here. Me, on the other hand, I have no friends here. (laughs) I have even my old co-workers from radio. I don't have any real contact with any of them. I tried to look up one dude and try to figure out a way to maybe go hang out. And, you know, it's the old sort of California... Fake kiss on the cheek. Sure, we'll get together. That kind of thing. I despise that. Don't ever do that to me. (laughs) But it never really came to fruition, right? And so, over the course of the last year, I have steadily found myself isolated, completely isolated and walled off from the real fucking world. I haven't left this apartment. It's going to be three weeks. This is all I do. I read constantly. I examine things. I, I kind of pay attention to the news and I'm really obsessed with what social media does to people. That's what I've become over the course of the last 16 months or so. It's become a project. An obsessive fucking project that has no human involvement whatsoever outside of myself and my girlfriend and these walls. I am completely isolated here. So what appeals to about hitchhiking to me at this point was reintroducing the human factor into all this. You know, getting back into that method of getting out there and just randomly encountering people. I mean, it's become almost impossible for me to really get to know anybody. I don't trust anyone. Human beings are inherently deceptive, instinctually deceptive. That's not me being a cynic. That is true. I do it, you do it, everybody does it. Everybody puts on a show for everybody else. And it's probably a goddamn good thing. If honesty, brutal honesty, was introduced into the human consciousness, instinctively, the world would fall apart. (laughs) I get that. I'm not condemning that. But it's really hard for me, as somebody who's sort of tried to commit themselves to authenticity, to get to know anybody. Because I don't trust them. I think they're full of shit. I I naturally, my default position is this person's full of shit. What is this person trying to show? All right, let's play. Who are you really? I can't tell. (laughs) So I don't connect with people. It's almost, it's become nearly impossible for me to connect with anyone on a legitimate, authentic basis. Because it's my fault, because I don't trust you, I don't trust what you say. You hate that. I know you do. I understand that completely. And I've tried to cut through it. I've tried to temper that. I've tried to give people the benefit of the doubt. <laughs> but God damn it. It's impossible. You can't balance those two things. You can't seek authenticity yet have to deal with people's fronts and facades. And everything else. I'm going to tell you something. I am the most honest person you know. I'm the most directly honest person you're going to run into. And I put on a show for you. Be careful if I, you ever see me sitting there quietly in the corner of the room. <laughs> yeah, I'm probably watching you, judging you, evaluating you somehow, seeing what makes you tick, watching how you interact with each other, the games you play with each other. It doesn't make me friends. It's very rare. The last real friend I think I made was in 2015 when I was down in Peru. I ran into that Dutch dude, Eric. And we were isolated off up in the Andes Mountains at Chris's hostel. He was watching the hostel for him, for Chris, when Chris, I think, uh, returned home. Something. Something. But we, we were isolated away in this cabin with no internet, no nothing going on except he and I hanging out, talking. And we got to know each other. And through the course of the conversation, I I found out that he was one of the most authentic and genuine people that I had run into in years. And once that happened, the guard came down, and we could actually connect. And again, it was one of those temporary things. It's like, well, here he is, and now he's gone. Not somebody I can have in my life on a regular basis. So yeah, I I'm completely alone here, doing this by myself. Which is the bet I made. It's fine, but that's what draws me back to hitchhiking because I'm like, well, at least I can get in the backpack. At least I can get out into the real world, into into nature, and with the weather patterns and the, the the day clock. You know, getting up with the sun, going bed, going to bed when the sun goes down and all that shit, which is great, by the way, but also have these random human interactions with people with no expectations and who will refuse because of who you are, who I am, sitting on the side of the road as a disposable fringe creature they assume is basically been cast off away from society for whatever reason. There's no facade there. It's the best thing about hitchhiking. You get the authentic human being. They're not putting on a show for you. You're disposable. So you get in their car and you get the real human being. It's incredibly insightful. I was reading my old stuff this week. from 2008, I think. The first year when everything was new. But God damn it, I was positive. Optimistic. I liked people. I liked those people I was running into. I like the authentic human being, the flawed human being, the real human being. There's an understandable commonality there when you can get through all the bullshit. But it's impossible to get through all the bullshit. You're not going to get that on the internet. (sighs) Please. There's like 15 different layers you got to cut through with that because of the anonymity of it and the detached nature of it. The PR campaign. Oh, look at my ideal life, and I'm so awesome. Fuck you. What the fuck ever. Stop it. Oh, and then there's also the (laughs) the public aspect of every conversation you have, right? I started the group up again on Facebook because I figured I, I deactivated my main profile. And then I opened up my group again. Figured, okay, I'll bring 10 or 12 people over here. And we can discuss things. And then I remembered, as soon as I opened it up, it was dead. Because there's nobody there to see it. Does the thought happen if no one's there to read it? If you're not showing off for your friends? Or you're not showing off for my friends or our shared friends? It never takes off because nobody's there to show off for. It's hilarious. And the conversations you have with people... On Messenger, the one-to-one conversations you have with people on Messenger are always better than the kind you have in a public forum, where you're all, where you're both out there trying to sound smart for everybody else, or you're posting for the world rather than having an actual conversation and an interaction. That was hilarious to me. I just realized, just like, oh my God, this isn't going to happen because nobody's here to read it, so they won't bother with it. The inauthenticity, man. The bullshit you got to come through to get to the core human being. It's staggering. I'm only speaking to some of you. Maybe, maybe I'm speaking to the ones I don't personally know. <laughs> Do you realize the level of bullshit? The degree, the thickness of bullshit that resides between your core and whoever it is you're interacting with? I, I wonder sometimes, Do you think you're that clever? Do you think nobody else sees it? And maybe that, you know, honestly, and, and this is entirely possible, maybe I'm just, maybe I am one of those rare few people who thinks about this. Maybe nobody else thinks about it. Maybe it's just that unspoken thing that we have as human beings where we just engage in the game and understand it's there. You don't call me on my bullshit. I won't call you on your bullshit. Sweet. Is that what it is? <laughs> I think I, used, I I probably used to be able to do that. I can't remember. I can't think back far enough. And I, I, I have done this, okay, but it, it's, it's really, it, I don't do it well. Like if I have to get in a social situation where I just have to be polite and I have to make small talk an hour, maybe, and I just clam the fuck up. <sighs> it's, like, it's exhausting for me to be able to do that. But I'll sit and watch you do it. <laughs> I'll do that all fucking... It's great. It's one of my favorite things in the world is to watch people do their bullshit joust and try to put on a show. If I see the show in somebody and it's sustained and you can't cut through it, (laughs) I'm done with you. I don't know what that says about me. And to my credit, I I, kind of just withdrew. Let myself feel like a piece of shit this week. What got me out of it at about 6 o'clock this morning after getting up at 3 o'clock was defiance. Like, wait a minute. What are you doing? What are you doing? It was the only way that I was able to kind of recapture and regain control of my psychic state. Defiant anger. But not directed like at any particular person. Either it's it was a lot of it was that myself, and the 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 obsessive thought pattern. That's old. It's antiquated. Again, I know it's not rational. I understand it. I understand all of that. We are not rational creatures, despite the you know the high-minded proclamations. People are not instinctively rational at all. Not instinctively. We have to work really 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 hard to get to that spot. And sometimes it doesn't work. Even when we put in the work, more often than not, we're going to fail. Miserably. The thing is, is usually it's done in private. It has been for me my whole life. And now, if it happens in public, any sort of meltdown, any sort of, I don't know, indication that there's some sort of mental turmoil going on, more often than not, we go into, like, PR damage control to cover it the fuck up, protect the digital brand, right? Right? I caught myself going there a few times this week, over the last few days, as early as this morning. (laughs) There was one part of the next podcast, it hasn't been produced yet, that like I mentioned before, you're going to be split-roasted, Todd, one way or another. And the people that triggered this this week were people that I would completely expect to come at me from an ideological perspective. Whether or not the piece was right or wrong, doesn't matter. I mean, I made a mistake there. I made a huge mistake. And I have to give you a shout-out, Thomas. My friend Tom decided to go to Snopes and actually see if that thing was real or not. And it turned out to be a disinformation piece. Somebody had produced it. It was a real picture. But the people they attributed it to, Antifa, didn't put it together. It was somebody else trying to make Antifa look bad. It worked. There's a whole thing behind this. There's a reason behind this. I've gotten to the core of it. It applies to the social media disease shit that I talked about before. I'm going to get back to that. Okay? But right now, what happened to me personally and psychologically this week, and the reason that I reacted and came at everybody, needs to be sort of explained at least to a point so you understand where it's coming from. I can't apologize for it. I mean, I guess I can a little bit. There are... A lot of you got caught up that, did, that shouldn't have been. I should apologize for that. And part of it was because I saw a lot of it coming from certain specific people. The split roasting thing. And there it was. The doctrinaires. This guy wasn't particularly clever. Oh, you hypocrite. Shut you up. You, you, you don't... God, it still pisses me. <laughs> Just go away. Get away from me. Look, if you're going to reside outside of the village, outside of the doctrinaire village, you'd better not assume anyone coming to your little oasis to hang out and explore. A lot of times, they're going to poke around to see what you're up to. Out of maybe an amused curiosity. Try to get you back in the fold, maybe. Oh, come on back into the village. It's warm here. You don't have to think. Or worse, they're going to look for weaknesses they can use to attack you when you're not looking. Sounds harsh, I know. Maybe a little paranoid, but is it? Is it? Let's discuss that a little bit. Because ideology, like religion, is an operating system. All right? It's a way to compartmentalize and view not only the world, but your self perceived place within it without having to evaluate and think about everything individually. Very few people have the time, the energy, or the desire to do all of that. Understandable, right? In fact, having the desire to examine everything is both an exercise in futility and probably self abuse as well. It throws you into a constant state of agitation, trust me on this. Confusion. Quite often uh, when you begin seeing, you know, human ridiculousness, our own ridiculousness collectively and individually, for what it is, can trigger an acute state of cynicism, anime, hopelessness. The thing is, I, I didn't understand any of this when I started tinkering around with a bag of Agita and found this phrase, uh, Vitam and Pandera Vero. Truth at all costs, Naske te Teyipsum, know thyself, Tanaski. I found those quotes and ideas about 15 years ago, and I I latched onto them, like a naive little twerp, thinking the truth will set me free. (laughs) My friends, I'm going to use another quote here. This one's my own. This is from several years ago. The truth is a cold-blooded reptile whose only responsibility to you is itself. It does not care if you survive or are devoured and then shit out by its appearance. The truth doesn't set you free. The truth just is. What happens to you after you're exposed to it, it has no concern for that whatsoever. Any imaginations to the otherwise are creations of your own little delusions. Truth is what it is. Your ego doesn't matter. How you relate to it and how you process it, it doesn't care. It still is what it is. <laughs> I did not realize that. Ooh. Now There are days that I wish I could go back to like 2004 and just say, nope, don't do that. Just, no, <laughs> you're not, no. I don't think you're going to like where this is going, Todd. Maybe not. It's too late for that. You can't put it back in the box. It's not something you can shove back in the bottle once you start. Unfortunately, if I could, I would go back to 2009 and keep my religion, for Christ's sakes. I'm not even kidding. I was so much better off. The audacity of belief is a powerful thing. The audacity of belief may be the best of things. Because it gives it's it's the motor. Hope is the motor for everybody. And if you don't have that, you know there's no <laughs> hope. And realism are two different things, right? And hope is a much stronger engine than realism. If you're hopeful, you're going to get someplace. You're going to try harder. You're going to push harder than if you're sitting over here basking in realism whether or not you can get there or should get there or if it's the right thing to do. It's infinitely more difficult to fuel your mind and your body and your spirit, your soul, your motivation with realism than it is to do it with hope. Hope is essential. That's why the sausage party hope thing is so important. You have to give people hope. What if there is none? What if you're stuck in realism and you see that hope is inauthentic? And you can't, because of your, I don't know, your ideals, your principles, you can't just contrive a sense of hope for either yourself or anyone else just because it's a fuel and an engine. What do you do then? I mean, if the path you've chosen the path you've chosen to explore is a rough and rocky one, good luck. It's like trying to climb to the top of Kilimanjaro on a kid's tricycle. Hope will get you there a lot quicker. It may be bullshit, but it will get you there a lot quicker, and I didn't realize that. I didn't. Well, I could have told you. Well, you didn't. Shut up. Shut <laughs> up. That's the hardest realization of all, man. They like to say the truth will set you free. It's not necessarily the case. It'll keep you real. You're going to be more authentic. You're going to be closer to reality. But the truth of the matter is, is that truth is a lot harder, infinitely harder than belief. I should have shut my phone off. And that's the thing, I think, that when people start tinkering around with really rough ideas and insights, trying to see things as they actually are, that will send people back to their caves of perception, send them screaming back inside these caves. Most people do not have the stomach for this, and I understand why. Believe me. Especially when it moves from judging others to examining themselves, examining their beliefs, and most importantly, and not just coincidentally here, most importantly, and most painfully, the distinct difference between who they really are, who they really are on the inside, and who they think they really are, who they quote-unquote want to be, and most importantly, who they pretend to be to the world. Those things are never the same. I'm always me. I'm always keeping a real bullshit. And all that stuff's the beauty, the sheer beauty of the mythology put forth in the Bhagavad Gita. That text presents the naked ego. Only if you're willing to look at it, though. Warts, scars, everything. Everyone thinks they can do that effectively. Everybody thinks they can. They're wrong. You can't. We know the ones who've successfully pulled that off. We know those people by one name. Jesus, Buddha, Muhammad. I have never gotten close, personally, to domesticating, let alone breaking or disposing of, my own ego. I've never gotten there. Again, I was embarrassingly naive in thinking I could even get close to that. To be perfectly honest, I'm too lazy. I'm too scarred. Far too self-absorbed in my own pride and pain to even think about letting all that go and really begin the process. Now, am I embarrassed to say that? More importantly, do you think I should be embarrassed to say that? If honest, I'm not, because the vast majority of you haven't even approached the point where you can see your own bullshit for what it is. I mean, dumb people don't know they're dumb, right? I'm not saying you're dumb. Stay with me here. Dumb people don't know they're dumb. While I'm not calling you dumb, I'm just going to say that again, most people fall into that sort of category when it comes to self-exploration. The thing is is that I can at least see this, let alone admit it publicly on my own podcast where it would be effortless to just move on and engage the Toddzilla branding project. <laughs> that I could even admit it and see it and put it forth puts me leaps and bounds ahead of the vast majority of people. Maybe you think I'm being prideful. Maybe a little arrogant. <laughs> Tooting my own horn maybe. Sorry. It's, right. it's fine. Go ahead and think it. I get it. Sadly, it's the indisputable fucking truth. It is. Now, of course, I'm not putting everybody in this category either. Most people yes, not everybody. We all have our secret personal inner lives, right? And any life lived outside of a bubble has scars and trauma and turmoil. Most people are in far more pain and torment than they let on. You won't see it. They will never let you see it because that would lead to vulnerability. I get that (laughs) perfectly well. A lot of us are absolutely riddled with existential confusion stemming from the gulf between who we are and who we want to be. Or at our age... Middle age, what they thought their lives would be, as opposed to where it is and where it's going, as the time grows shorter and shorter and shorter, and hope begins to dry up. I'm telling you, I'm right there with a lot of you, I promise. Right there with you. (laughs) But that difference between who we think we are, who we want to be, and who we really are, I used to call that singularity. A lot of people. We'll never talk about that to anyone. Who they want to be versus who they are. Who they see themselves as being. Who they really are. Who the world thinks they are. Who they really are. They're not going to talk about that to me either most of the time. I get that too. Rest assured, I know it happens. I got to tell you, I always appreciate it when I see the signs of this process shining through the PR campaign's cracks. Always appreciate that. I used to call this the, the inner child, this process, the internal life, right? The struggle. I used to call it both the inner child, that's what I called it the first time, and then the morrow of humanity. I came that, up with that. I hate that phrase. I couldn't, I haven't been able to think anything better, but the morrow of humanity I came up with in, in 2017. And it's the one thing, I think, that we all universally have in common, whether we want to admit it or not. I still think this is the thing that once embraced could actually bind us together. A common struggle, right? Rather than having it against communism or fascism or narcissistic perceptions of oppression and injustice. Simply being a human being and struggling with an adolescent ego. Being able to perceive ourselves as we are. Being able to be who we really are and comfortable with that is something that the white man has in common with a black woman. Ooh, there's something, huh? And I'm going to tell you something to deny that this struggle exists to anyone. To deny that to anyone is destroying your own capacity to be a simple empathetic fucking human being. And to suppress it in yourself, it's going to suffocate your soul, man. Eventually, and showing the struggle to anybody but your closest friends or family requires vulnerability, and a lot of it. To offer any public glimpse, and without the selfish ulterior motive of you know gaining cheap attention and sympathy, that's courageous. Because as I've said before, the internet is where vulnerability goes to be gang-raped. The ability to share that human struggle while not pandering for cheap attention, it's a rare trait. And most of my most respected friends have it. Usually accidentally, which makes it more authentic. (laughs) right? They don't even know they're doing it. Which is great. It's awesome. Much of the time, they don't even realize it's there, man. I I, I cannot tell you how much I love to see that. Most folks receive my immediate respect. Immediate. Even if I don't tell them. And I probably should more often. Respect is a big deal to me. I don't immediately offer it fully. And even when I do, it's not an indefinite badge that's going to be worn until you're dead. At least for me. Most people think differently than I do about this, I think, but I'm not of the opinion that everyone deserves authentic, real respect. I don't believe that. Beyond polite and momentary paper-thin pleasantries, the illusion of respect, I guess. Real respect in my opinion, is something that's earned and far from permanent. Now, once you have it from me, at least on this plane, it's terribly hard to lose it. Other than that, my level of respect offered, or fucks given, is tied to authenticity and how much organic capital you and I have collected together. And how recently. We may have known each other 30 years ago, had legendary times you know, out hunting and capturing questionable beaver out there in our younger years. But if we have nothing in common today, haven't seen each other in decades, and you're either an oblivious dipshit, or worse, a goddamn parrot, who thinks regurgitating someone else's thoughts without any of your own organic elbow grease beyond a quick rephrasing makes you wise, I owe you nothing, here in the present day. Nothing. And if you presume that the familiarity you had during the Daddy Bush administration entitles you to certain privileges here in 2019, like, you know, unsolicited consultations or judgments about how I've chosen to live, my ideas, observations, or whatever, you think you're entitled to that and you haven't been along for the ride or even attempted your own little expedition? (laughs) No. Allow me to paraphrase Teddy Roosevelt here. Fuck the couch-bound critic who's never even tried. There's also a Thoreau quote that sort of applies here. Don't presume to sit down and write until you've stood up to live. I have. I have stood up. I have lived. Have you? Are you sure? Where can I read what you've written? Where can I listen to your podcast? Where can I read your ideas? Oh, you're not on the battlefield. You're not on the playing field. huh? What say you, Teddy? Fuck the couch bound critic who's never even tried. Good advice, Teddy. It's a much longer quote. <laughs> so have you stood up to live? If you're if you're here to criticize me, if you're here to, I don't know, critique my work, I'd like to critique yours while we're at it. Not somebody else's, not not somebody else's repackaged and reworded, I'd like to see yours. I'd like to see your project. What are you working on? Anything? Are you sure that you've stood up? Are you sure that you've actually lived? Many people will say, yeah, I have. And most of them are either deceiving themselves about it or outright nakedly lying. Now listen, if you have, none of this applies to you and you already know it. Right? For the rest of you, think about that. You're going to criticize me. You're going to criticize the work I've done. And it's been a lot of work, believe it or not. I want to see yours. You want to shit on my painting? Let's see what you've done, Picasso. What you got? Let's compare notes. Make sure they're your own. Make sure you're not cheating off your neighbor. I mentioned in the last podcast that I see friendship a lot differently than most of you folks do. I do not consider a friend's role to be that of a blind, unquestioning, supporting fucking Tony Robbins. Maybe a living, breathing, motivational poster. That's the role of an acquaintance, a colleague. Something like that. A true friend is honest with you. Even if it pisses you off. If you're truly quote-unquote friends, your friend will get it. He'll understand that you're just being honest with him. Now, it's probably really smart to judge whether or not you're quote-unquote really friends from both perspectives. From both perspectives. Do they see you the same way you see them before you engage in such honesty? That's just common sense. But in my view, that's maybe the most important hallmark of true friendship. Honesty. There aren't very many of these types of friends you find over the course of your life. Real friends. That's the main reason I do not trust people who appear or claim to have hundreds and hundreds of friends. I'm suspicious of whether or not they could even distinguish between a friend and an acquaintance. We all know these people, right? If they can't, they're ultimately disposable. Run-of-the-mill. Besides, they have plenty of friends. They're not going to miss little old me at all. But the problem here is that when this happens, when the eventual divergence occurs, (laughs) the disposing of the friendship comes along, butthurt kicks in. And if they sniffed around long enough, or if you've let them too close to home, they might have some personal psychological weaponry to use once it becomes clear that the friendship isn't quite what they assumed it was. These are the fuckers, these cocksuckers, I refuse to abide. For obvious reasons. I have issues, and that's one of them. You want to see me unbridled in a state of rage? That's the way to do it. I mean, these people are going to go away once I sniff it out one way or another, whether the weaponry was directed at me or not. I pay attention to how you treat other people. Do you realize that? Especially if you're on Facebook. I watch what you say to other people. I'm almost constantly judging people. (laughs) Until I'm really comfortable with who the hell they are, I pay attention. I'll follow you around other people's profiles. I do that. I see what you're saying on other people's pages. Shit shows up in my news feed. Let's <laughs> we'll see what he said. I'll compare notes. See what you said over there to what you say to me. I look for consistency. Originality. I look for doctrinaires above all else, especially if they've come out and claim to be a certain way or this way or that way or another way. I'm tending my garden when I do such things. It's a wise practice. Making sure you surround yourself with the right people. Signal to noise. A lot of metaphors here. The Useless shit epiphany I had. Lightening the load. Carrying only what you need. I can go on and on. That applies to people, too. People who are offering something, providing something. People who aren't just pretending. Wasting your fucking time by pretending to be this, that, or the other thing when all they are is a cookie cutter copy, a clone of somebody else. I'll just go to the original if I want that. What the hell do I need you for? Seriously. What do I, what are you offering? What are you providing? What are you bringing to the table? We already have potato salad. We don't need more potato salad. It really bothers people. I don't know why that is. I don't know for sure, <laughs> but I think it's because, I don't know. I'm not going to get into that. I've been uh, mean enough today. But I think, now, yeah, fuck it, I'm going to say it. I think it's because it reflects the lie. Anyway, yeah, you, uh, you, you, you pull out that psychological weaponry on me, you're going to do it one time. You had better make it fucking good. I won't be forgiving you. Later on, nor will I care to fight fair after that. Remember that. You made a mortal enemy. And the problem is, of course, that these fuckers, these creatures pollute social media. A lot of times, hiding as your supposed quote-unquote friends. And also behind the first-person illusion of anonymity that's provided by a little detached uh, security. Hiding behind their computer screens. They think they're safe. I, look, I've dealt with too much of this to want to deal with it anymore, both online and in my personal life. I mean, too much of that. That's one thing I will not. I will never abide that. And if I see you doing it to somebody else, taking a vulnerability and stomping on it, I don't care if it's directed to me or not. You're you're gone. We're done. You're not going to get a courteous explanation either. Fuck you. Go away. That's what you get. Look, maybe you're better equipped to handle this than me. That's great. I'm happy for you. Woo! Go you. (laughs) But whenever this happens now, I get the uncontrollable impulse to just get everyone the fuck away from me. Everybody. doesn't matter whether you did it or not. Again, I know it's not rational. I understand that. doesn't matter. It's a protection mechanism. It's a well-used, a well-crafted protection mechanism, too. Because honestly, it's better to have no one around than to deal with that. It affects everything, man. It almost got me again this week. Until I I realized that surrender just isn't an option here. I'm, I'm, I can't just pull into my shell or go hide in the backpack on the road anymore. I've already done what I need to do out there. There's nothing new out there for me. I know what resides on the side of the road. I've already brought it home. At this point, it's just... It's an escape now. and escape isn't an option. So rather than bleeding on the ground in the fetal position again and pushing everybody the fuck away from me, perhaps I'm better served channeling some of this defiant anger, the useful kind, and setting some very, very, very clear boundaries so you know where I'm coming from and letting you know where the fuck the boundaries lie this time so there's no confusion moving forward. I am not a perfect human being. In fact, I'm quite broken in a number of different ways. I understand that. I am a conflicted, internally conflicted human being who's often fighting himself. I've been doing this a long time. I've understood it for a long time. I think what I'm getting to the point now is that <laughs> I either have to peel part of it off or I've got to make friends with it. I don't think I can peel it off. I don't think this is something that I can just treat. I don't trust psychiatrists either, so I have to do this by myself. I've done really well at getting to it, understanding it, poking at the exposed nerve. It's not something I could just dive into. I've had to do this a little bit at a time over the last 10 years. Just I, I have a very, just a very finite amount of tolerance for the type of pain that that triggers. And shame as well, because you see these things. You understand these things about yourself. It brings humility into the picture, but also shame, because you see how you've treated other people or how you've reacted in certain situations, thinking you were doing something for one reason, but it was completely something else. You didn't even understand your own reaction to something. Yeah, shame is a good word. Sometimes you can't repair those things. And, you know, to be honest with you, in a number of these cases, nothing real recent, but a number of these cases, it wouldn't have even mattered. Even if I had understood where it was coming from, it would not have changed the outcome. We are not rational. We have to work exceedingly hard at it. And when these emotions get too powerful, it's almost impossible to do that. That elephant will stampede when it wants to stampede. You are, (laughs) you're the little mouse on top of Dumbo. Good luck grabbing those reins when he wants to run. But it does help to understand it, because at least maybe, even when you're in it, even if you can't control it, even if you can't understand it, why you can't control it, I mean, you can still comprehend what's going on. So when you calm down and you get out of the fucking weeds, you can have a clearer recollection of what happened and maybe work a little bit more toward either preventing the situation from happening again, a recurrence, or knowing the warning signs beforehand so you don't get there to such a a stark degree. I don't know. It didn't help me this week. I can tell you that. I couldn't help it. I knew exactly what was going on, and I couldn't help it. This is a step. I've never done this before. Let me explain this to these fuckers so they know that I'm not just being a dick. Well, maybe I still am being a dick. But at least there's a reason I'm being a dick. Doesn't matter to you from your perspective. You don't give a shit, I'm sure. And most of you don't. But here's the why. Do with it whatever you like. I don't hate you, Hillsdale people. I do not despise you. I never have. Some of you I think a great deal of. Some of you I absolutely adore. But there has to be boundaries there. Simply by the misfortune that that's where you live and that's where I came from, and the associations with who I am now and who I was then and how that relates to you has an effect on me, a big one. I'm not comfortable with it. I'm not comfortable looking someone in the face from the time when I was 18 years old. You haven't been around for 20 years. You don't know what I went through. You didn't see the change happen. In my eyes, you still see me as that 18-year-old, that 22-year-old, that drunk. And in a couple of cases, a couple of situations, you did see me drunk in 2013. (laughs) Sorry about that. That was really weird, man. I went to Brian's place that year. I spent a month, I think, three weeks maybe, whatever it was, And I've told the story before. I'll tell it again. I could not stay sober. The anxiety was so suffocating the entire time I was at his house. It had nothing to do with him. He was great. It was being there. I couldn't stay sober. The only reason that that trip, or that stay, lasted so long was that he had two kegs of beer and some whiskey in the house. I would get up, fill up a glass of beer, and I was constantly drinking. It was the only way I could cope with the anxiety of being back there. It really disturbed me. I couldn't figure it out. I couldn't understand for the life of me why that was. I hadn't had that in 09. Not too much. Or maybe I did, and I just, maybe I'm misremembering. Because we drank a lot of Bobbies that year, too. <laughs> but yeah. So I have to I have to put the boundary up. I have to keep the wall up with a lot of you. Not every one of you, but a lot of you I do. It's not like you have to avoid me, but we, unless we have gotten to a point where we have gotten to know each other recently or we're in the process of that, updating the operating system, you know what I mean? Like updating the relationship firmware <laughs> so we can relate to each other now as opposed to having to relate to each other on a basis of who we were 30 years ago. Unless we can do that, i got to keep you at arm's length because it makes me really uncomfortable. You're not doing anything wrong. It's me. For the most part. <laughs> Some of you. Hmm. I hope that makes sense. I hope that helps. You know, I, know. <laughs> I don't know that I explained this perfectly. It's really hard to dig deeply into this. It's not the kind of thing you talk about, right? It's not the kind of thing you're used to articulating. And I hope I've done this properly. That you understand where I'm coming from and why this is such a a weird problem for me. I can tell you this. I'm going to say this again. I may have mentioned it earlier. I don't remember what I said. (laughs) But I'm not the only one that's dealt with this. There's been a few people that I've run into from Hillsdale who went away a number of years ago and feel really uncomfortable. They just don't like going back there. I'm not quite alone in this. I know where mine's at. It's compounded by the fact that I'm doing what I do publicly. I have been sort of living my life publicly for 10 years now, and I started 11 years, and I started doing this before Facebook. About six months before I logged on to Facebook for the first time I started this. So social media wasn't supposed to be a part of this. But maybe it's for the best. I don't know. Maybe it's, maybe it's for the best that I actually have to actually confront this and deal with it. I don't know. So, there you go. One other thing that I do want to mention for you folks who are listening along and are paying attention to the social media disease stuff, the thing that I talked about that triggered this whole thing, the post that I threw up on Facebook, uh, was a piece of disinformation. It was put out by somebody to reflect poorly upon Antifa. I was susceptible to this for a very specific reason. The reason Tom could think, in his rational mind, to go check Snopes to see if it was bullshit or not, and I didn't, was that I had been basking in so we're gonna call I'm gonna start to call the IDW right adjacent. I've been paying a lot of attention at that point to the intellectual dark dark web people. I've got another piece on this. I'm not going to get into it in depth today. But one of the criticisms of the IDW is that they are Trump adjacent. They're unfairly critical of the left while sort of positioning themselves as being these big independent thinkers, right? These non-party affiliate, not ideologically affiliated, just free thinkers, right? I spent uh, the last couple of months, since I started this podcast anyway, That was my main Twitter feed. Because a lot of the stuff they put up there is really, really good. Quillette is still one of my favorite uh, websites to get at least new information or different information or different points of view. But most of their Twitter people, the IDW stars, these social media intellectual influencers, all of their material is on Campus Free Speech how politics is invading science and stuff like the transgender thing, transgender athletes, and also what some people would refer to as reverse racism or whites hating whites or the condemnation of whites by certain progressive factions, which is real. The problem is that I was basking in it I was seeing it constantly. And I've noticed now, in retrospect, I didn't notice it at the time. I didn't even put two and two together. But I want you to consider this as I say it. My temperature was rising the whole time. I was feeding it. I was feeding the fever. More bacteria. (laughs) Almost every hour of every day. I had put Twitter on my phone. Oops. I had put Facebook on my phone. Double loops. Why did I do that? I took it all that shit off two years ago. Why did I put it back? Because it was easier to post the podcast. It was easier to market the podcast with the applications on my phone. So I put it on there, but I started checking it. All the time. Oh my god, there's more, there's more. Right? So I want you to think of all that stuff as fuel. Kerosene. Gasoline. Jet fuel. However you want to look at it. Just a little drop, maybe a little like a cup. Here, cup here, cup here, cup here. And along comes this fucking spark. The final straw. Where I started seeing all this stuff is like Hitler propaganda posters back in Germany in 1935. And it ignited. Boom. How difficult is that to do? To people who are residing in echo chambers constantly and consistently. Feeding on outrage. Self-righteous outrage a lot of the time. But being outraged and being lathered up by this, that, the other thing. And then something like this, some piece of disinformation just conveniently dropped in there to set you off. How often is that happening? How often do you think that's happening? And if you wanted to divide a population... What better way to do it? I mean, again, I said it at the, at the outset of this podcast, and it troubles me that I was susceptible to this, despite being fucking aware of it, hyper aware of it. It nailed me. Because I let the fever grow. Because I kept ingesting the same shit all the time. Getting the fever to a point where it's ready. its re- The boil is ready to burst. And then, poof, there it is. The detonator. How often is this happening? To how many people is this happening? On a regular basis. And, more importantly, in light of 2016 and looking forward to 2020, they've already said the intelligence community is certain that the Russians are trying to interfere with us again. From the outset, the, 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 the intent has not been to elect one candidate or another. That narrative seems to be new to me because up until recently, it was all about division. They said that the, the goal of the Russian disinformation campaign on social media was to divide us. What better way to divide us? Raise the fever, pop the boil. I mean, do you, do you realize how much I hated Antifa? I, well, <laughs> let's just say my disdain for Antifa reached a boiling point. Now it's down to simmering. You see what I'm saying, though? You, do you understand where I'm coming from here? I would suggest ahead of the next release of the next podcast, as we go back to normal programming, I would highly suggest you evaluate your information consumption to make sure that it's not just echo chamber chum designed to raise your fever a little bit and a little bit and a little bit to get you primed for the propagandist's visceral reaction. I'm telling you, man. I thought I was pretty well inoculated this week. Apparently not. So, how have I reacted to this? I removed both of those applications from my phone. I have purged my Facebook feed. (laughs) Again, probably shouldn't have done that, but I did. And I've also gone in to Twitter and bleached who I was following. No more IDW folks. In fact, no more political people at all. I I am on Twitter now to get baseball photographs. I like old-time baseball. Twitter's really good for that. I met a couple of people over there accidentally that I have enjoyed staying in touch with, so I'll keep it for that. But that that is a podcast-spreading mechanism by itself. I'm following like 40 people on there. How do people follow 15,000 fucking people? How the fuck do you even get to that point? You got to be an app, right? <laughs> How do you tweet 100,000 times? Uh, so anyway, there you go. I feel better. How about you? Has our relationship taken a step forward? <clears throat> This is the weirdest podcast I have ever done. I think. I'm sure there will be more. I don't even know how to put a bow on this one. I feel like we just had sex. <laughs> so you want a cigarette? Let me go get like water. You need a towel. <laughs> escapingcave.com that's a website you can also uh, check out christophermedia.net all the great shows over there they're going to be uh, Chris and Rich are going to be joining me I think next week we'll see uh, you can also get me over on Apple Podcasts Google Play I'm on Spotify I'm also on Stitcher of course of course everybody's on Spotify and Stitcher and uh, at ETC pod on Twitter Facebook page is back functioning again so hope to see you over there till next time so long